When you say what has been achieved through affirmative action, I sort of think very personally of my family. Both my grandmothers were maids and both of my grandfathers were janitors. Never saw high school graduation, right? They lived in the Jim Crow South. And so I'm a law professor today. <laughs> I have a PhD and a JD. My brother has an MD. My sister has an MBA. How could it be that the grandchildren of maids and janitors could achieve these things today? It's through affirmative action. Hi, and welcome to the New Rules of Business by Chief. I'm Carolyn Childers. And I'm Lindsay Kaplan, and we're the co-founders of Chief, the network of the most powerful women in business. Each episode, we unravel complex business trends and challenge preconceived notions of leadership. And the question we're exploring today is, when will corporate America start seeing DEI as more than just a buzzword? How far are we really willing to go to achieve equity? Yeah, because it feels like a lot of companies are feeling pretty self-satisfied with their social justice statements and DEI programs. But are those same companies thinking about the greatest threat that's coming for their DEI initiatives? Of course, what you're talking about is the impending Supreme Court decision on affirmative action, which looks very likely to become overturned in the next few months. And if you're thinking, what does banning affirmative action in higher ed have to do with business? Let me just say a lot, as today's guest is going to make very, very clear. Crystal clear. This episode features the one and only Dr. Kiara Bridges. So take it away, Carolyn. We're joined today by Dr. Kiara Bridges. Dr. Kiara Bridges is a professor of law at UC Berkeley who researches the intersection of race, class, and reproductive rights. Thanks for joining us, Kiara. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Yeah. So we have a lot to cover today. So many topics. Kind of unfortunately, so many topics to cover. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and specifically, we're going to jump into the Supreme Court case on affirmative action and what it means for business. But first, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your work and what brought you to this line of research on race, class, and reproductive rights? Thanks for the question. I went to law school in the late 90s. I loved researching about law. I loved writing about law, but I didn't love practicing law as much as those other things. And it turns out that being a law professor is kind of the greatest job for folks like me. I came to reproductive rights specifically because I was, I've always been fascinated by the phenomena a pregnancy, I think, is one of those events that confounds societal dichotomies, you know, the dichotomy between self and other, the dichotomy between one and two, <laughs> the dichotomy between sacred and profane. So I was very interested in investigating how the law just treats the event of pregnancy. And I've always been interested in race. I think that's a product of my upbringing. I grew up in a 
very privileged suburb of Miami in which I was, you know, only one of very few non-white people in my in my all of my schools, my middle school, my high school. And so race has always been incredibly salient to me. And so I figured out a way to combine all of those interests, studying race, health, pregnancy, and as they all intersect and are regulated by the law. Yeah. Well, the world is better for it, for you to be focusing in this place. But before we launch into affirmative action, I do want to talk about your work on reproductive rights. As a co-founder of an organization like Chief, I care deeply about protecting bodily autonomy and access to health care. And I'm curious, as you were at the Senate hearing for Roe in particular, what were you hoping to achieve? I was hoping to just enter into the record basic facts <laughs> that I felt have not been amplified as much as they should. I think it's important for all people to be able to control what happens to their bodies. I think that the ability to control whether or not you will give birth controls the content and the trajectory of your life. But living in the United States, a country in which we have various inequalities, including inequalities on the lines of race and class, I thought it was incredibly important for us to recognize that the reversal of Roe will be devastating to unprivileged people, people of color, poor people, they're going to be the ones who are unable to navigate this country in which now there are some states in which you can have some semblance of reproductive autonomy. And there are some states you simply don't have that ability and so this is a racial justice issue, right? It's not just a matter of misogyny. It's certainly that. It's not just a matter of patriarchy. It's certainly that. This is also a form of racial control. I can tell you stories about the history of the U.S. in which people of color have been regulated and oppressed on the basis of their reproductive capacities. And so this is just the newest iteration of that long trajectory, that long history of controlling communities controlling people through their reproductive capacity. So that's what I wanted to accomplish at the Senate hearing. And it was successful in that regard. I think a lot of people paid attention to a particular part of that hearing, but I'm also <laughs> really happy that I had an opportunity to elevate and make visible trans people, non-binary people. They are also impacted by reproductive oppression, reproductive control. So all in all, it was a successful time. <laughs> And you're talking specifically about a very viral interaction with Senator Josh Hawley during the hearing. Let's play a short clip of that now. Denying that trans people exist and pretending not to know that they exist. I'm is denying dangerous. that trans people exist by asking Are you? you if you're talking Are you? about women Are you? having pregnancies. Do you believe that the, uh, men can get pregnant? No, I don't think women can <laughs> so get pregnant. So you are denying that trans people exist? How do you feel about that moment and the attention that it got? Do you think it helped further the reason that you wanted to be there? Well, I think that it's so easy in this present sociopolitical moment to ignore the most marginalized and to get wins. We get wins by centering the most privileged. And so centering cis women who now are unable to purchase the abortion services that they want in the marketplace, right? That's kind of like politically 
acceptable. It's politically understandable. It might even be politically wise to center those people. But the problem is that when we get wins by centering those with the most privilege, after we get those wins, we leave behind everybody else. We leave behind trans masculine people. We leave behind non-binary people. We leave behind poor people, people of color, undocumented people, people with disabilities. So I think that as we go about navigating this post-Roe world, as we go about fighting for legislative wins, fighting for perhaps for wins in the court, I think it's important for us to center in our advocacy those who are not usually centered because they are not sympathetic, because it's easier to get, you know, that swing voter in Ohio if we ignore certain populations. I think it's important for those folks to be in our advocacy because if they win— we all win. <laughs> if trans masculine people win, cis women undoubtedly win. So I think that we ought to keep that in mind as we sort of go forward in this post-real world. So since the reversal, what else do you think we should all be focusing on next to keep fighting this fight of reproductive rights for women and people with the capacity for pregnancy? We are deluding ourselves if we believe that this is the end I think that we're deluding ourselves if we think that once Roe is reversed, then all those forces that's interested in returning this country to a period of time <laughs> that kind of only exists in our imaginations and our fantasies. And I'm specifically referring to a period of time in which all people with uteruses were women. All women aspired towards marriage and becoming wives. All wives inevitably were mothers. And all mothers were self-sacrificing, had no other desires in their world but to raise these children and have as many children as they possibly could, right? While being supported by the husband who went out and made the money, brought the bread home, and then to be cooked by the wife, right? <laughs> this is also a period of time in which LGBTQ people were either erased, right? Trans people just did not exist, but also gay people, lesbians could be punished, could be criminalized, could be thrown in jail for their behaviors, sexual or otherwise. This is also a period of time when our borders were closed, very selective, right? This is a fantasy of a country that we've never actually really been, but there's a very strong current in our country today that's looking to move us back to that time. And so, like I said, I think we're deluding ourselves if we think that the reversal of Roe is just the end, the stopping point. There are a whole lot of other things that need to be accomplished in order to move our country back to a time that we thought we had moved beyond. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And clearly overturning Roe isn't the end since now we are looking at a potential affirmative action ban on the very near horizon. Can you walk us through a little bit of the context and history of this policy? Yeah. It's so important to tell an origin story about affirmative action because I think a lot of people kind of encounter affirmative action and it's just like hiring practices today and admissions practices today. But in reality, affirmative action is a product of the demands that activists made during the civil rights movement. In the 1950s and 1960s, right, people took to the street in the largest social movement that this country has ever seen and Black people and their allies demanded full citizenship. And so they demanded formal equality, right? Equality under law. 
And they won, right? They won some significant gains after the sit-ins, after the freedom rides, after the protests and the marches, the country capitulated and the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 was passed. And so we entered into this era of formal equality. Affirmative action was a part of those sort of radical changes in American society. Specifically, Richard Nixon was the president who first advocated for affirmative action in federal hiring. And the idea here was that there were entrenched inequalities. There were vast and deep and persisting inequalities that ran along class lines, but because class and race follow each other closely in this country, mired people of color in poverty. So affirmative action was a technique by which Black people could experience economic mobility. So it was a plan to achieve racial justice, right? It was an effort to remedy past societal discrimination. So it's really important to keep that in mind because in 2022, we talk about affirmative action very differently. We talk about affirmative action as a means by which we can create diverse workplaces and racially heterogeneous classrooms. And it's certainly that is true. But I think that we miss a very important part of the story when we ignore the origins and social justice, when we ignore the fact that affirmative action might be a means by which we can address historical racial inequality and how that inequality persists today. What do you think has been achieved through these policies? And on the other hand, there have been several states that have already done bans on affirmative action. And so what was the result of taking those away? When you say what has been achieved through affirmative action, I sort of think very personally of my family. Both my grandmothers were maids and both of my grandfathers were janitors. Never saw high school graduation, right? They lived in the Jim Crow South. And so I'm a law professor today. (laughs) I have a PhD and a JD. My brother has an MD. My sister has an MBA. How could it be that the grandchildren of maids and janitors could achieve these things today? It's through affirmative action, right? My parents, who grew up in housing projects in Miami, were the beneficiaries of affirmative action. My mother went to Florida State University. They were able to go to schools because those schools were interested in remedying historical discrimination. My father got jobs. He was hired. He got positions because those companies were interested in remedying historical discrimination such that I could grow up solidly middle class. I've already said I grew up in a very white suburb in Miami so that, you know, I was able to accrue the indicia of merit that we have in this country. I had incredibly high SAT scores. I had a million AP classes. I did all those things that you're supposed to do in order to be meritorious. I was a cheerleader for God's sakes. So because of affirmative action, I can sit here today and tell you that, you know, I'm not the only one, of course. When those programs were instituted on a nationwide level, there are so many families that wouldn't be where they are today without affirmative action. 
that's why it's important. And so that's why when my very, very blue state, California, passes a law that says that we can no longer consider race in university admissions, it's devastating because I know that we have stopped a means by which kids today can achieve, can get out of the processes, the poverty that so frequently intersect with racial unprivilege. I know that we're stopping a means by which 25 years from now, somebody can stand in front of an audience and say, I am a beneficiary of affirmative action because I am here in front of you. So what do you say to those people who say that positive discrimination of any kind isn't fair or just isn't needed anymore? That rests on a misperception of how institutions work to perpetuate historical racial disenfranchisement. When I look across this country (laughs) and when I look at statistics describing this country, and when I am utterly convinced that there is nothing inherently wrong with people of color, yet people of color exist on the bottom of every single measure of social well-being, when people of color have shorter lifespans than white people, when people of color are incarcerated more than their white counterparts, when people of color can't survive pregnancy (laughs) as frequently as their white counterparts, and so on and so forth, it suggests to me that there are institutional processes that are making it so that those things are true. And let's be clear, affirmative action is not like the saving grace. It's just one effort of what should be many that we are pursuing in order to undo some of those entrenched processes that reproduce historical disadvantage. Yeah, I mean, that's a hard thing to argue against when you look at those just different outcomes that everybody is experiencing. Yeah, to sort of tie back to our earlier conversation, there are also racial disparities in abortion rates. And so Black people have higher rates of abortion. And why is that so? Is it because we really like to get abortions in the Black community? No, it's because of disadvantage. And then when we actually try to pursue parenthood, when we try to actually give birth, we're three to four times more likely to die in the endeavor. And this is important to keep in mind, persists across income levels. So even though I have tenure and class privilege and own my home and I'm working on retirement, even though I have all those things, I'm still more likely to die during pregnancy than my white counterpart. So when somebody tells me discrimination today just doesn't exist, I'm like, how? Like, what are you looking at? Because I'm looking at facts. I'm looking at statistics over here. So like I said, affirmative action is just like one of many techniques we ought to be pursuing to try to make some of those things that I said just untrue. Even though this Supreme Court decision is focused on universities, we know that most well-paying corporate jobs require a college degree. And yes, there are some companies like Google and Chief that are beginning to remove that mandate. A diploma is still a prerequisite for many. So as you think about the consequence of if affirmative action is banned and the impact that it could really have on the racial wealth gap, that is another aspect of this for sure. It's devastating. So it's devastating because of the reasons that you just mentioned, right? And also, it's not just any degree, right? Yeah. The the degrees from the most elite schools are the ones that are most coveted, right? I tell everybody in legal academia that everybody is hired from the same three schools. (laughs) 
It's kind of like the Supreme Court today. All of them went to Harvard or Yale, and then there's Amy Coney Barrett who went to Notre Dame, right? Like, so the same three schools. So the fact that Harvard is at the center of this litigation where they're trying to essentially prevent Harvard from being race aware during admissions means that they're closing the door to a pathway that leads to upward mobility and power and privilege and status in our society. I usually hate making predictions, but it's so easy to make predictions with this particular Supreme Court. (laughs) So in June 2023, I predict that the Supreme Court will hand down a decision that overrules Grutter versus Bollinger, which is the case that permits race consciousness in university admissions today, it will be devastating because it will close a pathway by which people of color can enter into the halls of power, essentially. But also, the decision will not be narrow in that respect, in as much as what the Supreme Court is doing is interpreting the Constitution to prevent race consciousness generally. What the Supreme Court is doing is interpreting the Constitution to demand colorblindness. The demands of the Constitution have been interpreted as simultaneous to the demands of Title VII and our civil rights statutes. So the restriction or the prohibition on race consciousness when it comes to state actors will be applied to non-state actors. So that means that large corporations will also be prohibited from using race in their hiring decisions. So the decision in Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard and UNC is just broad in the sense that all corporations that are bound by our civil rights laws will be prohibited from considering race in hiring decisions. A lot of companies have very much recently made very public statements about wanting to invest in DEI and the importance of it in their companies. And this definitely could have the risk of pulling some of that back. Are there other areas outside of the hiring decision that you think this could have impact? Any effort that touches on race is now suspect in a post-Gruder world once the Supreme Court hands down its decision. So essentially what the Supreme Court is holding is that to think about race is race discrimination. When Harvard thinks about race, when Harvard allows its admissions officers to consider race, they're engaging in race discrimination. And so it's not a leap of logic to say that when a company has a workshop on race relations in the company or implicit bias. There might even be like a little special little workshop that's on, I don't know, Indigenous Peoples Day. It's not a leap of logic to say that those efforts, because the company is thinking about race and because it's inviting the employees to think about race, that the company is engaging in race discrimination and they're encouraging and inviting the employees to engage in race discrimination. So again, like what the Supreme Court is doing is mandating colorblindness. So that is a mandate on everybody to be colorblind. So that will severely hamper diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts in companies. It would incentivize them to play it safe and perhaps not to pursue some of the efforts that they otherwise would have pursued under less hostile Supreme Court precedent. It definitely puts at risk a lot of progress that I think companies have made. But I also just wanted to note that we've seen 
just a lot of corporate activism against conservative legislation and judicial actions lately, including this case. What's your take on this other people's word, so-called woke capitalism? And what do you actually think corporations' role should be in getting involved in promoting democracy and decisions like this? My goodness. Great question. I remember (laughs) when woke wasn't a pejorative term. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It wasn't that long ago. I think that being aware of consequences is not woke at all. I think that advocating a position that would benefit your employees and therefore the company itself is not woke. (laughs) It actually might just be protecting your bottom line. That's not woke at all. So I think I say all of that to say that companies have a role in this. Companies have a role in protecting democracy. (laughs) I'm just thinking about like silence is complicity at this particular sociopolitical moment. And as we are witnessing states making it difficult for people to vote, as we are witnessing states forcing birth, as we are witnessing states sort of slide into fascism and to ease away from democracy, I think that it just strikes me as absurd to believe that the proper place of the corporation is to say nothing. So I think that corporations ought to be involved in articulating how decisions will impact their company and how their decisions will impact their employees. How will forcing birth impact employees in Texas? How will the inability to consider a person's race or ethnicity impact the company. And Grutter versus Bollinger, this was the 2003 case in which the court upheld the constitutionality of race-based affirmative action. Many corporations, as well as military leaders, submitted amicus briefs just trying to educate the court about what's at stake. And it was compelling to that court. They cited those amicus briefs in support of a holding that the Constitution permits race consciousness. So. I do think that the words, the positions of corporations today might be compelling to some justices on the court. And so I think it is kind of their duty to make those facts known. We had Ken Chenault on this podcast last season. He's actually one of our board members. And we asked him to grade the DEI progress of corporations and how much they were actually standing behind a lot of the words that they were starting to use. And I will admit that he gave them an incomplete grade. (laughs) Good. Fair enough. Fair enough. That means that, you know, it's not final. (laughs) Yeah, they're still working on it. (laughs) Right. I'm curious how you feel. Are people actually standing up and doing things or is there more that should be happening from companies? I probably would also give companies work an incomplete as well. (laughs) (laughs) I gave you an easy answer there. (laughs) I know, I know, I know. Thank you for setting me up for that. I appreciate it. I am a critical scholar. My orientation is to critique. So I think that we're kind of making it easy for corporations because we have to use the language of diversity. We can no longer use the language of like 
justice. We can no longer use the language of racial inequality. (laughs) So we're actually making it easier for corporations. And let me actually be clear that this is demanded by the Supreme Court precedent. Grutter said that trying to produce racial justice is impermissible, (laughs) but trying to produce the educational benefits that come from a racially diverse student body, well, that's permissible. So now we have to use the language of diversity because the Supreme Court said that if we use any other language, well, then we run into legal problems. So I think it makes it easier for corporations to say, oh, this is just all about diversity. This is just like making sure that different viewpoints are represented. And this is just like making sure that our boardrooms and our meeting rooms, people have interpersonal collisions and they can learn from one another. And again, I don't doubt that those things are actually generated by racially diverse spaces in companies and so forth. But I wish, I really wish that we can talk about justice with a capital J. I really wish our efforts were honest and explicitly about undoing entrenched racial hierarchy. So all of that to say, companies have an I right now, but it's kind of easy to get into the B pluses and the A minuses and the A because the bar is lower. All we're trying to do is just make things racially diverse as opposed to produce justice with a capital J. So, yeah, and I certainly don't want to dissuade companies from undertaking the efforts that they have been taking, but I wouldn't be me if I did not make plain how our conversations are impoverished because the Supreme Court has constrained the language that we use and therefore the efforts that we pursue. The name of this podcast is The New Rules of Business. So we always love to ask all of our guests the question of if you could write a new rule of business that would actually improve equity and diversity or, to your point, justice, what would it be? Just one? Just one rule? I mean, if there was literally one rule, wouldn't we have made more progress on this? Right. (laughs) It it would be the rule that governs all the rules. One rule to rule them all. The rule would be something along the lines of, think about how your company, the work that you do, the places where you hire from, do a study on how your company might contribute to or ameliorate racial inequality, sex inequality, pick your inequality, right? Just do a deep dive into whether your company is contributing to the inequality or whether it is reducing it or whether it's kind of ambivalent towards it. Like in some respects, it's contributing to it. In some respects, it's diminishing it. Allow that to inform the decisions that you make, right? Are there different things that you might do in order to not participate in these processes, these race-neutral processes that contribute to racial inequality today? Might you start looking to hiring from different places? Maybe don't get as excited as you used to get when you saw a Harvard MBA. (laughs) Just temper the excitement a little bit and start looking at other schools that might also produce amazing graduates, but you never give them time of day because, well, you got this Harvard MBA there, you got that Wharton over there, right? If we don't critique our present practices, then we'll never be curious about alternative practices that might produce the same or better outcomes while not reproducing the inequalities that just are so well known that they're banalities today. Yeah. 
Love that. Well, final question that we also love to ask all guests, which is, what is the best piece of leadership advice that you've ever received? Or the worst, you can choose either one. (laughs) (laughs) The best piece of advice that I've received, I was very young and I was talking to a scholar. I look up to her. And I asked, how do you deal with all the invitations that you get? And she was like, you got to say no. (laughs) So by saying no, guarding your time, protecting your peace, you show up better to the things that you have agreed to. And hopefully the things that you've agreed to to are the things that you actually want to do. You're excited to get out of bed in the morning. The moments when you're kicking yourself for your poor decision-making skills, they're fewer and far between, and you're happier generally in life and in your occupation. So say no. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have to imagine that you are on a lot of requests to come and talk right now, given so much happening with this ruling potentially coming out of the Supreme Court with Roe decision coming out. So I really thank you for saying yes to this conversation and joining us today because it is just such an important topic and you're such a valuable voice in all of this. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for inviting me. Thank you for allowing me the opportunity to speak to your listeners. That was Dr. Kiara Bridges, professor of law at UC Berkeley. I'm going to be quoting her all day. Like, she said that banning affirmative action would, quote, close the doors to the hallway of power. Ugh. Such a good line. Amazing. She really has made the implications so clear. This is about so much more than higher ed. It's about the big picture of actually achieving racial justice. And it's about the long-term business strategy, not just DEI strategy. Equity ultimately benefits employees, therefore the company, and therefore the bottom line. Yeah, and I love the way she challenged leaders to think about how easy they've had it because of the language of DEI. They don't have to talk about justice with a capital J, but they should. You really weren't kidding about quoting her. Yeah, okay. But while she's given us (laughs) a lot to quote and even more to think about, what's most important here is action. So start now. Critique your current practices. Assess where your business is really making a difference in terms of equity and where you've made missteps. Because we've all made them. And if you just accept the status quo, you'll miss all the opportunities there are to achieve the same or better business outcomes without reproducing historic injustices. I couldn't have said it better myself, Carolyn. Although Kiara could, and she did. (laughs) Well, she is the expert in this field with the PhD, so I would expect her to say it a lot better than I do. (laughs) But with that, I'll close us out. So that's all for this episode of the New Rules of Business. Don't miss out on all of our chief content. You can get more episodes by following the show on your favorite podcast app. And if you're more of a social media person, find us and join the conversation on LinkedIn. But if you're ready to up the ante and you're thinking about becoming a member of the Chief Network, head to our website, chief.com, where you can apply. As a member, you'll be connected with the world's most powerful network of executive women. Thanks, Sharon Yee, Courtney Conley, Mercy Harper, Blaine Edens at Chief, and to our production team, Pod People, Rachel King, Matt Sav, Amy Machado, Danielle Roth, Madison Lusby, Hannah Pedersen, and Michael Aquino. Our music is by Colin Hatch. 
I'm Carolyn Childers. And I'm Lindsay Kaplan. Thanks for listening. Yeah, yeah. But while she's given us a lot to quote and even more to think about. What? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think you're about to break into song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 